Oops. There's always something. I can see most people from here, I think. Thanks to everyone who's contributed to the service already, um, to Kerry and the kids and uh, Celeste. and it's, uh, it's lovely to be with you all to this morning, um, and I love the way that things have come together already. We love Rob and his preaching, don't we? And I've also loved hearing from different people uh, from different perspectives in our journey through Philippians so far. So Rob, if you ever watch this online... I hope that you are happy that we are doing okay. Oh, dear. It's okay. Um, if you've got a Bible with you, please will you open it so we can look at this passage together. We're at the end, uh, partway through chapter 2, from verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon that I may also, also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. After all the wonderful things we've heard in Philippians so far, it's tempting to jump through past these everyday matters about travel plans to the next good stuff in chapter 3. But that would be missing out too much. And so what I'd like to do, us to do this morning is look at four things. Firstly, who is Timothy? A bit of personal background. Why include these details? A bit of historical background. Yes, and why include these details here? There's a logical background going on here. And then, yes, but how? To make it practical, how can we become people who look out for others and Jesus' interests? So, firstly, who is Timothy? I think it's helpful to put together what we can from the other parts of the New Testament to get a sense of a real person who lived and did stuff. He's more than just a name that pops up from time to time. So, Timothy came from a mixed marriage. His mother was Jewish, her name was Eunice, and her da his dad was a Greek. And he grew up in Lystra. So, there's a, a bit of a map there. Lystra is where the house is. It's possible that his father had died or left his family, and so Timothy was brought up by his mother and his grandmother, Lois. Timothy means one who honors God, but unlike uh, other Jewish boys, he wasn't circumcised, as was the custom. He was taught the Old Testament scriptures from childhood, and he committed himself to following Jesus at a young age during Paul's first missionary journey through his hometown. And when Paul passed through his through Lystra again on his second missionary journey, he invited Timothy to come and join him on his mission team. And Timothy joined Paul and stayed with him on his journeys for about 10 years. And that squiggly line is Paul's missionary journeys. His exposure to Jewish and Greek traditions served well as he helped Paul spread the gospel to the Gentiles. He sometimes served as Paul's scribe, 
writing letters. That's why there's a couple of envelopes to churches in Rome, uh, Corinth, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, and Philemon. And Paul's two letters to Timothy, 1 and 2 Timothy, carried instructions for Timothy's message in uh, ministry in Ephesus, where the church little building is. Paul sent him there to organize the church, to guide in the selection of leaders, and instruct the church on dealing with false teachers who threatened their well-being. And more than that, Paul sent Timothy as a messenger and his representative to some pretty challenging church situations. So when this letter, Philippians, was written, Paul is in jail, most likely under house arrest, for preaching the message of Jesus. And after a messenger arrives from the church in Philippi with a financial gift and some questions about how things are going, Paul writes back. And we know from the very beginning, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, Timothy is with Paul in jail. Uh, that's a photo, but I wasn't there. Um, he's not under arrest himself, but he comes and goes with uh, messages to and from Paul. So that's where we are. Why do we include this at this part of the story? What? We study this book. It's called a book, but we, as part of sacred scripture. But remember that Philippians is actually a first century letter from a real person to a group of other real people. And letters between people haven't changed all that much over the centuries. In addition to words about the writers and the recipients' respective situations, they often include words about planned movements, and that's exactly what Paul is talking about here. Do you remember at school being taught about how to write a letter? Different types of letters, business letters, dear sir, uh, friendly letters, hey hun. I don't know if kids are still taught about writing letters in school today. Emails, tweets, miss you, wish you were here, please send money. <laughs> there are two letter writing manuals from the Greco human world 2,000 years ago from two people called Demetrius and Libanius for, tr for training professional scribes. And um, Demetrius lists and illustrates 21 different types of letter, starting with the friendly type, the most common. Um, according to Cicero, this was the reason for the invention of letter writing. Cicero didn't believe friendship was a very important thing, but if you can't be with a person, write them a letter. And number six is the letter of moral exhortation. That's a long word meaning urging or encouragement which was usually written in the context of friendship. And unlike most of Paul's other letters, Philippians includes characteristics of both these kinds of letters. So let's look at a sample friendly letter from Demetrius. Even though I have been separated from you for a long time, I suffer this in body only, for I can never forget you or the impeccable way we were raised together from childhood up. Knowing that I myself am genuinely concerned about your affairs and that I have worked unstintingly for what is most advantageous to you, I have assumed that you too have the same opinion of me and will refuse me nothing. You will do well, therefore, to give close attention to the members of my household 
lest they need anything to assist them in whatever they might need and to write about whatever you should choose. So Philippians has all the characteristics and logic of a friendly letter. But as Paul so often does, he transforms this cultural way of doing things into something distinctively Christian. For Paul, it's all about Jesus and living out the gospel. So, at the very beginning, friendly letters are related to the separation of friends. I wish you were here. From chapter 1, Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm, the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. And from chapter 2, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The letter is also concerned with the situations of the sender and the receiver. So from chapter 1 again, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. And from chapter 2, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I may also may be cheered when I receive news about you. And then lastly, about doing well in looking after the needs of the sender. From chapter 4, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. So why include these details here rather than commonly in some of Paul's other letters at the end of the letter after he's talked about all the important things, then we get to please give hugs and kisses to all the brothers and sisters in the church. The logical background, there's a line of argument going on in this letter. Friendship in the first century was understood very differently from now, and so were ethics and morality. In the Greco-Roman world, ethical instruction was not related to religion, but to philosophy, and moral instruction often took place in the context of friendship, where a superior was instructing an inferior, often through letters. And so we come to uh, an example, exhortatory, encouraging, urging letter from Libanius. Dear inferior, always be an emulator, dear friend, of virtuous men. For it is better to be well spoken of when imitating good men, I put this in, like me, uh, than to be reproached by all people while following evil men. So in this kind of letter, the, the writer is the recipient's friend or moral superior. And this type of letter aims at persuading or dissuading towards or away from certain times, kinds of behavior. And the author often appeals to examples, including him, him or herself. And so if we look at Paul's appeal to his friends in Philippi, I loved what Kerry was saying about as equals. He's not a superior. He's appealing to them on the basis of mutuality and friendship. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from His love, 
if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. And there are two major exhorting sections in Philippians, in chapter 1 through 2 and 3 and 4. And at the heart of each of these sections, there's an example. In the first section, it's Jesus. And in the second section, it's Paul. And Paul includes these here explicitly as examples, as models for the Philippians' way of thinking and living in keeping with what he says in the go- is the gospel. Chapter 2, verse 3, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Ouch. And in between those two sections, there are these two little bits about Paul's plans, his affairs, sending Timothy soon and sending Epaphroditus now with this letter. And commending the bearer of a letter was common practice in first century letters. And you can imagine Paul sitting in jail, dictating his letter to Timothy, who's writing it down. He's been talking about how he wants the church to live out the gospel. And he doesn't leave the example until the end of the letter. He includes the letters right now. It's not just the theory. He follows up his commands or urges with very practical examples. And these two people, these two men, are not icons to imagine, to be imagined. They're both men who are well known to the Philippians. Be like these guys. And Paul commends them because they both exemplify the gospel. And Timothy is not even going to be carrying a letter. So Timothy models the gospel serving the gospel by caring for the needs of others above his own. And Epaphroditus models the gospel by, by modeling the suffering that often accompanies the gospel. As Ben reminded us a couple of weeks ago, if we are going to believe and live and stand for Jesus, it can often bring suffering. So, a preview of forthcoming attractions... We'll hear more about Epaphroditus and suffering next week. I hope you come along. It'll, it's going to be a cracker. So, what about Timothy's example? Verse 20, I have no one else like him. This is the same Greek word used at the beginning of chapter 2. It's actually a combination of two words that mean equal and soul. Paul is saying that he and Timothy are soulmates. The wording is strong. Paul feels like he has absolutely none like Timothy. Secondly, genuine. Genuine concern is natural or legitimate. Paul says that Timothy is the real deal. Timothy's interest in the Philippians' church welfare was a sign of his inner character of compassion. He was a true shepherd. That word interest... The Greek word interest is a strong word that shows Timothy was concerned to the point of being burdened. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul writes, Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. 
And Timothy had that same concern. He'd seen the Philippian church begin. He had a vested interest in their welfare. And only someone who genuinely cares about the Philippians will be able to cheer up Paul with the news about how they're doing. Verse 21, for everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Timothy is a real living example of what Paul wrote about in in chapter 2, verse 3. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Timothy cared so deeply about other people's concerns that his own concerns paled into insignificance. His life was Jesus, others, himself. And Paul's giving us examples of how to live ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And one of the marks of a growing Christian is to say, me third. The church at Philippi knew that Timothy had proved himself. That the word there means proved after testing. Timothy was a seasoned veteran. He'd survived and thrived through hardship. He was Paul's troubleshooter in Thessalonica and in Corinth, in Ephesus, and and in Philippi. He was sent to the Thessalonians to strengthen them in their persecution. Uh, From Thessalonians 3, verse 2. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and our co-worker in God's service, in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. What a rock to have. Sent to the Corinthians to remind them of Paul's ways in the Lord, 1 Corinthians 4. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. And in Ephesus, Paul's letter to Timothy, chapter 1, Stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. And Timothy is as a son with his father. In that culture, sons learned their trade and their faith from their fathers. And in other letters, Paul calls Timothy, my true son in the faith, my beloved son, my beloved faithful child in the Lord. Paul was Timothy's mentor and father figure. And Timothy was like an apprentice son with Paul who had served alongside him for many years. And then lastly, notice that Paul does not say, Timothy served me in the work of the gospel. He inserts a very important word. He served with me. The word used for served there is duleo, which literally means he slaved. He slaved like Jesus, who, going back to chapter 2, made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. So, Paul is describing Jesus as an example. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Paul uses himself as an example of one who is following, becoming like Jesus. He's not God. He's a human follower. And he uses Timothy as another example, a real living person 
with a history who the church knows as an example of what it looks like. So the message here is, it is possible to become the kind of person who lives out the reality of the gospel like this. We know people like this. Putting the interests of others first is the way of humility taking the lower road, like Kerry told us a couple of weeks ago, the downward road of the cross. And as the good news of Jesus affects God's people in this way at the core of who we are, we can expect to count for the gospel in a world that lives the opposite, not only as a matter of course, but as its primary value. We've all heard it. Look out for number one. As long as the cross dictates that number one is Jesus, number two is your neighbor, and number three is when you and I get a look in. Yes, but how? How can we become people who look out for others and Jesus' interests? Is it possible to become like Timothy, who exemplifies this, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit? Is it possible to become like Paul, who literally doesn't care whether he lives or dies? From chapter 1, I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. What do you do with someone like that? He's in jail for spreading the good news about Jesus. And he says in chapter 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Do not be anxious about anything. And further on in chapter 4, verse 12, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Paul, are you serious? Do you literally believe that I can or should live like that? It sounds like Paul and Timothy are psychotic. They are literally out of touch with reality because we know that this is not how the world works. Maybe it did back then, but not now. Naji. <laughs> this is the 21st century. There are 8 billion people on this sad world trying to survive. Everyone needs a side hustle just to make it. It's me, Naz. Oi. Oi. We come into this world utterly dependent on caregivers to meet our every need. I looked up a Scientific American article about why human babies are born so helpless. And it said this, although newborns of other primate species rely on caregivers too, human infants are especially helpless because their brains are comparatively underdeveloped. By one estimation, a human fetus would have to undergo a gestation period of 18 to 21 months instead of the usual nine to be born at a neurological and cognitive development stage comparative to that of a newborn chimpanzee. 
How does that sound, mums? 18 to 21 months for a chimpanzee. But somewhere along the way, with our parents or our siblings or our so-called friends in the kindy playground, we learn that I have to look out for myself. No one else is going to do it for me. Otherwise, things are not going to go well for me. And I think we develop a basic fear that there's not enough to go round. Or a basic greed that this ball, in this case, is mine. I need or want more. I, I need or want it more than you do. And therefore, I have to look out for my own interests. And that may mean that I need to present myself in a way of to maximize the probability that I can get what I need from you, whether that's election votes or a job offer or some of your lunch or whatever it might be. And in a, that's another word for that is manipulation. And this is what drives our relationships with each other more than the mindset of Jesus does. We may learn along the way from experience that not everyone in the world is out to get you or to beat you. There are kind people in the world, but I don't think we'll easily grow out of or beyond that basic fear. And Jesus comes and says so often, do not be afraid. That's not because he was often dressed in lightning. Angels often arrive and say, do not be afraid, because they look like lightning. A natural response is to feel afraid. Jesus didn't look like an angel very often. But what he's saying is, in this world, living with God, there is no need to be afraid. It sounds like Timothy and Paul are actually living what Jesus said in Matthew 6. And I'm reading from the message version. If you decide for God, living a life of God worship, it follows that you don't fuss about what's, going, what's on the table at mealtimes or whether the clothes in your closet are in fashion. There is far more to your life than the food you put in your stomach, more to your outer appearance than the clothes you hang on your body. Look at the birds, free and unfettered, not tied down to a job description, careless in the care of God, and you count far more to him than birds. Has anyone, by fussing in front of the mirror, ever got taller by so much as an inch? All this time and money wasted on fashion, do you think it makes much difference? Instead of looking at the fashions, Instead of looking at the billboard about spring coming to Queensgate, walk out into the fields and look at the wildflowers. They never primp or shop. But have you ever seen color and design quite like it? The 10 best-dressed men and women in the country look shabby alongside them. If God gives such attention to the appearance of wildflowers, most of which are never even seen, don't you think he'll attend to you? Take pride 
in you. Do his best for you. What I'm trying to do here, and this is Jesus talking, not me, what I'm trying to do here is to get you to relax, to not be so preoccupied with getting so you can respond to God's giving. People who don't know God and the way He works fuss over these things, but you know both God and how He works. Steep your life in God reality, God initiative, God provisions. Don't worry about missing out. There's no FOMO with Jesus. You'll find all your everyday human concerns will be met. Give your entire attention to what God is doing right now. And don't get worked up about what may or may not happen tomorrow. God will help you deal with whatever hard things come up when the time comes. Jesus and Paul are not saying that there are not hard things in life or that they won't come up in your life. But Jesus and Paul know about hard things like death, like death on a cross. Jesus and Paul and Timothy have come to know that this world is a perfectly safe place for us to be. This world is a perfectly safe place for us to be. As soon as you hear that, you might have a, an objection, a strong objection. Uh-uh, no, 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 Jesus, no, Paul. What about that time when? What about those people that we prayed for in Morocco? I know it's very easy for me to stand here today, healthy, clothed, safe, and say this. It, but it's something that I, I believe is true, and I'm, I'm learning and relearning how important this is. We've all got our own challenges. For me, the biggest ones were living through hyperinflation in Zimbabwe. Um, when Jack was born, we, we didn't go to the shops for six months because there was nothing to buy. And then we moved to Botswana, and then God opened the door for us to come here in an amazing way um, to a job that was undoable for me. And what I had learned... Um, through that time in Zim, I needed to learn again. If we place ourselves in God's hands, no harm can come to us. Harm is not the same thing as hurt. We are still vulnerable to experiencing hurt. But Jesus is saying that God has arranged a world in which everything is taken care of in its own way. Do you not believe that God has made provision for you? 
Jesus' invitation is to see God in perfect control of the world, allowing everything to come to pass, because at least in the long run, it is good. In Romans 8, Paul does not say that everything is good. He says, all things work together for good. For who? For those who love God and are called into His purposes. Who does that include? Everyone? Who's excluded from that? No one? Everyone is invited. Everyone can come. Everyone can love God and be called into those purposes. God made everyone to be part of those purposes. And so I'd like to close with a kind of meditation, a time to listen and respond to another apparently crazy part of the Bible with our objections. One of my favorite authors, Dallas Willard, he, he died of cancer. <laughs> he wrote in the introduction to his book, Life Without Lack. One of our greatest needs today is for people who re- to really see and really believe the things they already profess to, to see and believe. Knowing about things, knowing what they are, being able to identify them and say them, does not mean we actually believe them. When we truly believe what we say, we are set to act as if it were true. Acting as if things were true means, in turn, that we live as if they were true. The words of Psalm 23 are among those things that people profess to believe. Many can recite the 23rd Psalm from memory, including people who don't believe much of anything about God. Some have learned the psalm purely as poetic literature. But far too few have experienced in their own lives the vivid reality described by the psalmist. Unfortunately, the Lord is my shepherd is a sentiment carved on tombstones more often than a reality written in lives. The title of this book, Life Without Lack, reflects the very first verse of the psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It describes the life we all desire, a life in which we want for nothing, or better yet, lack nothing. The psalmist is portraying a life we were meant to enjoy, one that is imminently available to us. But do you believe this verse is actually true? Few people act as if it were. And so let's read through and listen to Psalm 23. And please understand, I'm not suggesting or recommending this as the power of positive thinking. This is not a prosperity gospel through visualization. Just imagine your Ferrari in your garage and it will be there because God will give it to you. We are simply allowing God to speak to us about our real lives here and now through His Word. Okay? And if you'd like to read the words as they come up for yourself, please feel free to do that. The Lord is my shepherd. 
In other words, I'm in the care of someone else. I'm not the one in charge. I've taken my kingdom and surrendered it to the kingdom of God, which is where God chooses what happens. I'm living the with God life. The Lord is my shepherd. And what follows from that? I shall not want. That's the natural result. I shall not lack anything. That's what Jesus teaches. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be added. He makes me lie down in green pastures. What kind of a sheep lies down in green pastures? A sheep that has eaten its fill. If a sheep is in a green pasture and she's not full, she'll be eating, not lying down. He leads me beside quiet waters. A sheep that is being led beside quiet water is a sheep that is not thirsty. Jesus said to the woman at the well, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He restores my soul. The broken depths of my soul are healed and reintegrated into a life in union with God, the eternal kind of life. He guides me along the right paths for His name's sake. The effect of the restoration of my soul is that I walk in paths of righteousness on His behalf as a natural expression of my renewed inner nature. As I walk along these paths, my trust in the shepherd runs so deep that I can declare, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. A life without lack is one that carries no fear of evil. Our confidence in God soars far above wants and fears. Would you like to have a life without fear, a life of soaring faith. It seems like Jesus was constantly saying to his friends, fear not, fear not. Imagine what that would be like. No fear of life, of aging or death, of disease or hunger. No fear of any person or creature, not even the fear of losing all your possessions. You, I, 